morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Today is Tuesday, July the 12th. Here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Nigerian security forces search for hundreds of prisoners who escaped an Abuja jail, including more than 60 convicted of terrorism. Has put all of us on our toes to make sure they are recaptured and taken out of circulation. We have charged members of the public to be on the lookout as well, and we have been able to get a tour of them. The DRC is now a full member of the East African community after the country deposited the instruments of the ratification at the community's headquarters. I confirm now DRC is a full member and the seven partner states of the East African community. We shall now from today export involve DRC in all the programs and activities of the community. In Zambia, the humanitarian organization Oxfam plans to release a report on the connection between inequality, food security and security. That's in the capital Osaka today. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Debrek Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, Nigerian security forces are searching for hundreds of prisoners who escaped an Abuja jail on July the 5th, including 60 that were convicted of terrorism. Security experts say the attack showed that Islamist militant groups, thought to be rivals, may be cooperating and warned that more attacks are likely. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. Authorities say two of the 64 high-profile terrorism suspects have been captured. One was caught in the nearby Nasarawa state as he fled the capital. Last week, authorities said it had recaptured more than 400 escapees, but hundreds more remain at large. Nigerian police spokesperson Muiwa Adejobi said security agencies across the country are collaborating in the search for missing inmates. The escape of these um, terrorists has put all of us on our toes to make sure they are recaptured and taken out of circulation. We have charged members of the public to be on the lookout as well, and we have been able to get a tour of them. All agencies are on the lookout, not only the police. The Islamic State West Africa Province terror group said it attacked the prison last Tuesday night with guns and explosives and freed more than 870 inmates. But security experts say among those freed were terrorists from the Boko Haram faction raising concerns about a synergy between factions of the two terror groups. On Friday, the Nigerian Security and Civil Defense Corps, in a leaked warning to authorities, noted that terrorists are planning to attack Abuja and had declared war on Christians, according to the internal memo. Chidi Omeje is the publisher of the online newspaper Security Digest. He agrees that Abuja could see more attacks in the coming weeks. I think Nigerians must sit up, and the government must sit up. Schools around the FCT, churches, owners of the recreation sport should be able to up their games in terms of uh, security you know, and defense measures. But another security analyst, Mike Ejiofa, says he believes the terror groups are still rivals, calling the threat of a joint attack a bluff. Those are conspiracy theories. The problem is that the various security agencies don't have the capacity to handle the situation. As election is approaching, 
these groups of terrorists, the ISWAP, the Boko Haram, they don't believe in democracy. So we're expecting more attack as uh, the election uh, campaign approach. Last Friday, President Muhammadu Buhari summoned security chiefs for a national security meeting on the matter. The outcome of the meeting is yet unknown. Experts believe terrorists who fled have regrouped in a base in north-central Nigeria near Abuja. Nigeria has been struggling to secure prisons. There have been at least 14 prison attacks in three years, with over 5,000 inmates escaping. But no prison break has raised as much concern as the latest attack. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. The Democratic Republic of Congo has now become a full member of the East African community. And this comes after the country deposited the instruments of the ratification at the country's headquarters. Moses Javiarimana has more on this report. The Democratic Republic of Congo has now become the seventh member of the community after depositing the so-called instruments of ratification, which were approved by the country's parliament. President Felix Shisekedi signed the Treaty of Accession of DRC into the community in April and was given a six months to process and deposit the instruments. Dr. Peter Matuki is the Secretary General of the East African Community. I confirm now DRC is a full member and the seven partner state of the East African community. We shall now from today henceforth involve DRC in all the programs and activities of the community because now they are full members of the community. So together we are bigger and we can exploit a huge potential in this now community. At the same time, we are going to confront all the challenges we are facing together as a community. While DRC's decision to join the community was announced in February, the country was gripped by the increased insecurity as M23 rebels claimed one of the cities in the eastern part of the country. This resulted in an emergency meeting of regional leaders to try to stabilize the DRC. George Odong is a lawmaker from the East African Legislative Assembly. East African community partner states have been some of the biggest contributors to peacekeepers under the framework of the African Union and the United Nations and have led some of the most successful operations abroad. The coming together of these forces will really put in place uh, minimum conditions for other options to be explored. The 19th Extraordinary Summit of the Heads of State of the East African Community held on 29th March admitted the Democratic Republic of Congo to the East African Community. The summit designated President Uhuru Kenyatta the chairperson of the East African Community Summit of Heads of State to sign the Treaty of Accession of Kinshasa. Christophe Lutundula is DRC's Minister of Foreign Affairs. Ainsi se réalise l'ambition he says that DRC's joining of the community is the achievement and ambition of President Felix Shisekedi to contribute to the friendship and development of Africa, particularly in the East Africa, and that it is a historical day because the community has become big. He says that the dream of those who founded the African Union is now starting to take shape. The DRC's membership expands the East African community with a close to a 50% increase in population, a 22% increase in GDP, and a 79% expansion of territory spanning from the Indian Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. 
Peace and security remain the key area of importance for the new member. The recent meeting of DRC President Felix Shisekedi and Rwandan President Paul Kagame was aimed at normalizing the two countries' relations and stabilizing the country. Moses Aviarimana for Voice of America. Daybreak Africa continues. In Zambia, the humanitarian organization Oxfam plans to release a report on the connection between inequality, food security, and security. The launch of the report will be on the sidelines of the African Union Summit of Heads of State and Government in Zambia. The report, officials say, details the sharp rise in growing inequality and poverty in Africa. It will also show that most governments are not doing enough to resolve the problem. This, it adds, leaves their populations at risk. The report's recommendations focus on the urgent need to tackle inequality with quality and sustainable investments in much-needed sectors, including smallholder agriculture, health, jobs, and social protection. To learn more about the report and what governments can do to help solve these challenges, VOS Peter Cloty reached Dials Judge. She's the program director for Oxfam in Southern Africa. The report is based on the commitment to reduce inequality, and it is a commitment that ranks uh, about 158 countries, you know, commitment to fight inequality through uh, three main broad-based areas. Um, and these are areas that we think have, you know, considerable power in terms of reducing inequality and poverty. And that's uh, um, public services, provision of public services. And when we talk about public services, we're talking health, education, and social protection. And then the second area is that of progressive taxation. And then uh, the third area is that of labor rights. And so this report essentially looks at the policies that the different countries have on paper and what is obtaining in practice and whether these policies are really being implemented in a way that it's impacting on, on inequality and poverty. Ms. Judge, there are concerns that African governments are not doing enough to reduce inequality in all aspects of the lives of their respective citizens. Are these also detailed in this report you will be releasing on Tuesday? Yes. Um, so the report that we'll be releasing on Tuesday speaks to a number of areas um, that indicate to the fact that um, African governments indeed could do more. Uh, so for instance, when you look at the aspects of low um, uh, coverage in terms of health and, uh, and social protection, you will see in there that um, the, the Southern Africa region, for example, is, is really in an acute uh, situation. We are considered to be uh, the most unequal sub-region um, or the most unequal region in Africa and the most unequal sub-region in, in the world. And that could be attributed to a number of things, including corruption, um, elite power, it could be poor governance. And all these really have hampered um, inclusive development, so to speak. And, and we have seen uh, the report highlighting how the wealth and incomes are increasingly concentrated in, in the hands of a few people. 
Ms. Jack, what are the two main recommendations? I know there are many, but what are the two main recommendations in this report? The two main recommendations, one in the immediate would be that um, the government should think around immediately reversing the planned austerity and to start increasing spending in essential sectors like health and education, as well as social protection, but also in productive sectors like um, agriculture. And we think that agriculture really would have um, a significant role to play in terms of impacting on, on poverty. Agriculture spending can combat inequality one or the other, and it can increase food security, especially if the investments are targeted uh, towards uh, smallholder farmers. And then we also think that um, there has to be some significant investment by the international community, especially in addressing the debt situation, um, including you know, solutions like debt cancellation. Um, and this might require that there is participation of all creditors, uh, both public and private, to consider debt cancellation in view of the impact that the African government have had to deal with. That was Dias Judge. Program Director for Oxfam in Southern Africa, speaking with VOA's Peter Cloti. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. The UN declared July the 7th of each year as World Kiswahili Day. It is spoken by an estimated 200 million people in East and Central Africa, making it one of the world's 10 most spoken languages. Kiswahili has been embraced by African regional economic blocs as one of the official languages of the East African community and the Southern African development community. The UN says that promoting the language also boosts African unity. Wafula Wafula is a Kenyan author of Swahili literature and a language teacher. Joining me from Nairobi, Wafula tells me that even though Swahili traces its roots to coastal communities, it has been adopted by various inland communities who have made contributions to the language. Kiswahili was a native language from people in the coast, especially from the main island. We have the island of Pate, we have the Zanzibar, we have the island of Shama, we have the island of Lamu and other islands in the coast. Now, what happened is that in 1961, when the East Africa people were fighting for the, for the freedom, in Tanzania, the Tanzania accepted the language Kiswahili through Malim Gilas Nyerere as the language to be used as, as a communication tool for the people to understand each other. Then uh, the Tanzania people, through the, a slogan called the Uzalendo, they introduced they accept the Kiswahili as one of the language so that the British and the Germany do not, not be able to listen to their the communication. Now, there seems to be some kind of a discrepancy on how many people use the language of Swahili or Kiswahili in the East African region. Do you have an idea on how many people use the language? As for now, from East Africa, region, we have the Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, because there's what we call the, what we call the dialect. In Swahili, it has almost 27 dialects. And these dialects are spoken in different areas from Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, to the extent to Congo. 
even how some people think Swahili in Mozambique. So this dialect always depends on where you come from, where you stay, and how have you been, uh, have you been maybe in contact with the language. There's an estimate that Swahili is spoken by more than 200 million people in East Africa, East and Central Africa. So, Mr. Wafula, how different is the language of uh, Kiswahili as spoken regionally by different groups? As to me, as what I have come to um, across and people from Southern Sudan and other other parts of Africa, we have so many words in the Bantus that can be included into the Swahili language. Because what brings a difference is about the the pronunciation of the vowels, alphabet, and how the words can be written. But there's something similar. And what are some of the common words used in Swahili that are easily recognizable to even the non-native Swahili speakers? The most common word that can be used in Swahili is not only in Africa, but across the world. For example, we have the word jambo. Jambo means how are you? We have the word like amani, which means peace. We have the man, the word means hakuna matata, that means no problem. Nakupen, that means I love you. So mm. it's just a, a, a common language that can be used across the, across the continent. That is Wafula. Wafula, a Kenyan language teacher and author of Swahili literature, was speaking to me from Nairobi. This month, the government of Uganda announced plans to introduce Kiswahili or Swahili as its official language. We asked Ugandans what they think about that move. My name is Mwangadi Abdullah Lazima, a student of Victoria University. It's going to help the young generation and it will be like good for the country because it will ease communication, especially at the borders when you're trying to trade. My name is Sabrina Lubia. Personally, I'm a, a language teacher, and uh, what brought me in Uganda is to teach Swahili. Most of my students, they really like Swahili. The percentage in a Swahili class, it's more than the percentage which is in English class. Because now people, they know how Kiswahili is important. Yeah, because you are an East African community whereby Kiswahili is used everywhere. My name is Daisy Ndagir. And uh, yes, Swahili is being made official in our country, and I think it's a very good thing because, first of all, as a East African community, most of the countries speak Swahili. That's Kenya, Tanzania, and also DRC. And if we can't understand our neighbors, it's going to be very hard to do trade and business. Most people come from other countries to Uganda, especially for refugees, and if we can't understand them, they can't understand us, we're not going to work things. We shall be very confused. Tumweb as a Kenneth, I really support it because most of the East African countries do speak Swahili and this left Uganda behind yeah it will help Uganda because and it will be like an alternative language just apart from apart from English those were some of the voices of Ugandans speaking on the plans by the Ugandan government to introduce Kiswahili as its official language Debrek Africa continues in Lagos, a youth-focused advocacy group, Yaiga Africa, is mobilizing young Nigerians to get registered to vote in Nigeria's coming general election scheduled for February next year. With the low rate of youth participation in the last general election, Yaiga Africa is on a campaign to get as many youth as possible enrolled in the voters' register before the deadline. 
And to encourage youth voters, the group is hosting a concert to lure youth to get their voter cards. From Lagos, Samuel Okocha reports on how and why this is happening. I feel it's important to, to vote because average um, young person stays at home. I remember the last election I was at home, I didn't feel the need to vote. Oluchi Bernard is one of the many young Nigerians who have just registered to vote in the coming elections in Nigeria. She has come here at the Lagos Tafawa Balewa Square, the venue of a massive campaign to get youth into the voters' register ahead of a promotional concert also scheduled to hold here. So this period, there's this thing in the air that makes everybody want to come out and it's very nice for these guys to have organized something like this. So it's good. Are you coming for the concert? I'm not sure, but I'm definitely voting. According to Nigeria's election body in Lagos, only 5% of youth in the state came out to vote in the last general election. To improve that record, Yaga Africa, a Nigeria-based youth advocacy group, is organizing a youth vote concert on Saturday. And to gain access to the concert, attendees will have to tender their voters' cards. And those without their voters' cards will have to register and get their voters' ID. Samuel Okocha... For VOA News in Lagos, Nigeria. And still in Nigeria, a member of the Christian Association of Nigeria says that the choice of a Muslim running mate for the ruling All Progressives Congress APC party presidential candidate, Bola Ahmed Tinubu, is a disrespect to the Christians of Nigeria. Reverend Polycap Baja is senior pastor of the Strong House Abuja and the chair of the Strong Foundation Ministries of Nigeria. He says that Nigeria is a multi-religion and ethnic country and that balancing the two is important to avoid conflict. This comes as Tinubu, a Muslim, recently chose Kashim Shetima, a Muslim and former governor of Bono State, as his running mate for the 2023 election. Tinubu has promised that if elected, he would rule fairly. Reverend Polika Baja tells VOS James Bati that having had a Muslim-led government for the last eight years, Tinubu selecting a Muslim-Muslim ticket for the 2023 elections suggests that there is a Muslim agenda to dominate rulership of Nigeria. First of all, um, Nigeria is a very multi-ethnic society. So to choose a Muslim-Muslim ticket first clearly is a completely a disrespect of the Christians in Nigeria. It's pretending that uh, Christians don't count. Clearly, it also means that uh, there is a Muslim agenda to take over the rulership of Nigeria. And um, after eight years of a Muslim being the president, what we are seeing in Nigeria is a pattern. Now, with Tinubu coming in, they want to perpetuate the Islamic viewpoint agenda and dominance of the Nigerian political scene. Pastor, let me ask you, Mr. Tinibu has said that he is going to be fair to all Nigerians. Therefore, when you say that to choose a Muslim means that he will have a Muslim agenda, what exactly do you mean? It is very clear. I mean, why would you choose a Muslim with a Muslim when it is a position in a multi-ethnic and very sensitive countries like Nigeria, you decide to choose another Muslim. What you are saying to the rest of Nigerians is that there is no Christian worthy or capable of being the vice president. And you know that politics is actually a game of representation. His promises carry no weight. 
politicians are not usually people of their words. But Nigeria has been run since for the sickest we have known it, and of a balance of both ethnicity and religion, because it is a very sensitive matter. You cannot now make that an issue. If you decide to do things like that, then you are polarizing the country further. You are making worse the situation that has actually precipitated into so much violence. Are you satisfied with the choice of the PDP presidential candidate, Alhaji Atiku Abubakar, who we understand is a Muslim and has gone to choose a Christian? Are you satisfied with that? Well, I would say I am satisfied because in the first place, after eight years of Nigeria being ruled by a Fulani person, to come and have another Fulani Muslim rule Nigeria for another eight years, again is disregarding the sensibilities of Nigerians. That was Reverend Polycarp Baja, a member of the Christian Association of Nigeria. He was speaking from Abuja with VOS James Bati. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.